The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Mark 11, verses 1 through 18. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, which no one has ever sat on. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went and found the colt tied at the door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them, Jesus has, and they said to them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And And those who went before, and those who followed were saying, Hosanna, rest he who is to, rest he who comes in the name of the Lord. Rest is the coming kingdom of our Father in the Hosanna highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. He had and when he looked around, everything was, it was all he liked. He went to the with the twelve. On the following day, when he came to the evening, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything. Anything on it. When he came to it, he dumb nothing but leaves, for there was not the season for figs. And he said, No one may ever eat them, drink them again, as the suffered heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was taking them and saying to them, It is not written, my house has been should be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teachings. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
Thank you, Kenzie and Austin. It took great courage. You did a wonderful job. We so appreciate you, and I'd like to give you a little bit of applause there. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Scott, and like Todd Teller, and I am also one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to open the scriptures. But before I do, just want to acknowledge that this was a really, really difficult morning uh, for a lot of people. Uh, there are actually quite a few people who were unable to make it today because their homes got flooded or they rushed to assist somebody whose home got flooded. And I imagine that for some of you, this was a little bit of post-traumatic from 2010. And uh, just uh, want to offer uh, the resources and the presence of the church, if any of you either here or at home uh, have need, uh, to please uh, consider the church as being among your first uh, and ready and available uh, responders. And uh, we have the, the people and the resources that, that would love to extend care wherever care is needed. Uh, so those things being said, uh, this is the first uh, day of Holy Week. It's traditionally known as uh, Palm Sunday. Your bulletin actually should include, as well as the website, uh, all of the different uh, options that are going to, to be there uh, this week, not only today, but every day this coming week, and then, of course, Good Friday in this room, and then uh, Easter Sunday as well, where there'll be all kinds of options indoors, outdoors, at home for those who are still uh, staying at home, awaiting vaccinations, herd immunity, and or whatever else uh, will make you feel safe or help you feel safe. Uh, but uh, we want to celebrate together uh, continually, even in this time of a pandemic that is not quite done yet. So uh, let's, uh, let's take a look here at Mark chapter 11. This is one of those passages that reminds us of how much irony and how much paradox are there uh, in the Gospels. The irony and the paradox are amplified, especially on Palm Sunday. Again, the first day of Holy Week, the first day of, of what we call Passion Week, and we see crowds of people lining the ground with branches to put under Jesus' feet because they are starting to recognize how powerful he is. And what was typical uh, was that whenever a presumed political or military leader entered town, people lined the ground with branches almost like a red carpet. We know uh, about the red carpet treatment, right, at the Grammys and the CMAs and other events. Well, this was their version of a red carpet treatment for a presumed political leader. And they're shouting the word Hosanna, which means Lord or King, save us. Now, this was customary political rhetoric in that time uh, that was typically used by a group of people that felt held down, that felt held back. And what they wanted more than anything else was a transfer of power so that things could either get back to what they once were or become what they never have been. And when they discover over time that Jesus is actually not coming as a military uh, champion, he's actually not coming to transfer power as much as he is coming to redefine power, 
This same crowd that puts uh, palm branches under his feet on one day, just a few days later on Good Friday, puts splinters in his back. The crowd that's crying Hosanna will also be the crowd that, that will cry crucify him just a few days later. The crowd is Jewish, it's Passover week, and whenever Passover is celebrated, they are thinking of one event, the Exodus. When God parts the Red Sea, delivers Israel from the oppressive political regime of the Egyptian Pharaoh, and then destroys the Egyptian Pharaoh and the Egyptians. That's what they want to happen again with Rome. And so Jesus is trending at this time. He's gaining likes. He's gaining followers. He's no ordinary rabbi and they're just starting to discover it. He teaches, but he teaches with authority, not like the other rabbis. He doesn't quote other authorities. He just quotes himself. He teaches with authority and he's done all of these things to demonstrate how powerful and how mighty he is. He's healed plenty of sick people. He has spoken to a storm and, and calmed it, spoke to it like a child and then told it to sit down and be quiet and it did. He raises a dead girl back to life. He feeds 5,000 men and their families uh, using just a few loaves of bread and just a handful of fish, multiplying the food miraculously. He walks on water. And then of course there's the transfiguration, which we uh, talked about a few weeks ago. All of these things are pointing to Jesus as an unusually powerful leader. But Jesus doesn't insist on the transfer of power, not at all. He redefines what power is. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The meaning of Palm Sunday really boils down to an invitation from the maker of everything to reconsider our own definition and our own understanding of what power really is. And what Jesus does is he demonstrates to us the power to get low, the power to assert himself, and then finally the power to make room. So first, the power to get low. Remember when St. Augustine was asked what are the top three Christian virtues? His answer was humility, humility, and humility. Humility sums up really all of the virtues according to Augustine. And Jesus becomes the prototype for what humility looks like. Typically, kings and emperors would ride into town on, a, on what they call a, a noble steed, a, a mighty horse, a thoroughbred, and or on, in a carriage that, 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 is, that is led by horses and surrounded by servants waiting on the emperor hand and foot, telling him how great he is. Jesus, on the other hand, rides humbly into town on a donkey that he has borrowed from somebody because he doesn't have enough resources to purchase his own donkey. He stoops to our level. Verse three, the way that he asks for the donkey is telling. The Lord has need, Jesus says, of the donkey. 
I have need. This might remind you of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, where where he said, I'm thirsty, I need a drink. Will you serve me? Will, Will you help me in my weakness? Will you give me something to drink? To a woman who herself was starved for grace. Or when he's about to go to his death, he he turns to his disciples and he says, I need you to stay awake. I need you to watch and to pray with me. I need companionship in my darkest hour. The Lord Jesus makes himself needy. In Luke's gospel and also John's gospel, uh, Jesus is asked by a couple of his disciples, Who's the greatest? Tell us who the greatest is in the kingdom of God. And and Jesus says, "Let's let's, let's define greatness first before we answer that question. The great people, Jesus says, are like the little children. And Jesus holds up a little child and, and says, let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them, because to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who recognize their weakness, who recognize their dependency, who recognize their need for their Father in heaven. And then what he does, you know, the, the one who exists so that we can get down low at his feet, a lot like we did during confession, as, as we got on our knees, and rightly so, and reverently so, we get on our knees when we confess our sins, and yet Jesus demonstrates to his disciples what greatness is when he gets on his knees and gets on the, the level of their feet and starts washing their feet in a society where feet were so filthy that it was the law that you could not even ask a slave to touch your feet, let alone to wash them. And here he is making himself lower than a slave to people that he created and people who he knew would soon betray him. If there ever was a short, concise, accurate biography of Jesus, It's two sentences from C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain. He is not proud, and he stoops to conquer. He is not proud, and he stoops to conquer. So where's the power? Jesus' power from Palm Sunday all the way to Good Friday is the power of restraint, the power of non-retaliation. When he had every right and every reason to retaliate, and he didn't. How powerful is he truly? The eighth psalm, you may remember me preaching on this a couple of months ago, the eighth psalm says that God created the heavens, the earth, and the galaxies with his fingers. Fine motor skills, the fine motor skills of God. It's metaphor, but it's it's, it's also a statement of how powerful God is. God could squash the galaxies between his thumb and his index finger, if he had a thumb and an index finger. That's how powerful God is. And yet, when God becomes a person in Jesus Christ, who's both fully God and fully human, it says in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself. 
who being in nature God made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. He exercised his power by not presenting himself as a power broker. Instead, here's the description we get of Jesus in Isaiah 53 where it shows us how he identified with sufferers. It says there was no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows familiar with pain. He submitted to death. And what's remarkable about the fact that Jesus submitted to death is that he's the only person who has ever lived who was not required to submit to death. The wages of sin is what? Death. That's how sin is paid for. Death. Jesus is the one person who ever lived who never committed a sin. And so he would have had every right to say, I choose to live. Let them perish. Instead, he said, I choose to die so that we can let them live. It's called the substitutionary atonement. It's where where Jesus steps in and pays the debt that we could never pay for ourselves except through our own perishing. In the eyes of the world, Jesus chose to be treated and regarded and seen and written and spoken about as if he were a loser instead of a winner, as if he were poor instead of rich, as if he were weak instead of strong. And the very willingness of Jesus to be portrayed that way in the world that he created is a demonstration of power. It's a power that's a humble power. It's the greatest power. The disciples followed in his steps after they caught on. Eleven of the twelve disciples were executed for their faith in Christ eventually. The only one that got spared was was the Apostle John, who called himself the, the beloved disciple. And we could perhaps surmise that the only reason why John was not executed for his faith was that Jesus wanted someone there to take care of his mother. Right? Because even from the cross, Jesus is stooping to conquer as he stoops to care. He looks at his mother and says, that man, behold, your new son. And and to John, behold, that woman, your new mother. I need you to step in for me. I need you to care for her. And so John is kept alive, at least in part to take care of this widow who is also just witnessed the death of her only, or or, or her, her not not her only son, but her firstborn son. Even at his point of greatest trauma, he is exercising the power to be other-oriented, to care. Well, where's the power in all that, really? It just seems so weak. Well, That's the point, too, that God's power, as we see in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, God's power is made perfect in weakness and through weakness. Here we are 2,000 years later, over one-third of the world's population is Christian. And it all started with this man of no reputation. It all started with, with disciples who were ordinary people, Blue-collar workers, 
No networks, no book deals. They weren't influencers in, in, in the way that we understand the term. They were none of that, and, and yet here we are. Tim Keller has a, a wonderful uh, you know, statement, what he, what he calls a thought experiment that he writes about in his new book that was just released about Christmas. It's a great book, highly recommend it. But Keller writes this, he says, let's do a thought experiment. Let's assemble some business and political consultants and pose this question. I have a goal. My long-term goal is to be the most influential and famous person who ever lived. Centuries from now, I want to have whole civilizations built on my teachings. And I want to be at the center of, li of the lives of hundreds of millions of people. What should I do to accomplish this? Would it be anything like the following? The consultants say, be born in obscurity, avoid ever getting involved in any of the powerful political or economic or academic networks. Be tragically killed in your early 30s before you ever write a book. That's how Jesus did it. He stoops to conquer. Power to get low. But secondly, the power to assert himself. Let's not think that he's a wimp because he's not. He's the furthest thing from a wimp. He gets low when he has to get low and he bows up when he has to bow up. Verses 15 through 17, it says, they came to Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So, so we're in March Madness right now, it's a little bit weird with no crowds and, and the, the, the basketball equivalent of laugh tracks as we watch the games. It's a little strange, but when I read a passage like this, I can't help but think of March Madness and Bobby Knight back in the day. Remember Bobby Knight? If he got upset with a referee, or with a referee, he got upset with his players, you just pick up a chair from the side of the court and hurl it across the court. And here we've got Jesus getting Bobby Knight on them in church, except Jesus has no malice in his heart. He has no lack of self-control. He turns over table for a purpose. He gets in the grill, and this is where Jesus gets intense and fierce. This is where the lamb starts to become a lion. He gets in the grill of people who abuse power by hurting people who have less power. And he denies access to people who deny access to those who don't have access. You've got here merchants that are setting up shop on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath, in what is called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, just a little bit of education about the temple. The innermost part of the temple, like the, the, the sanctuary that we're in right now, the innermost part of the temple was reserved for Jewish men. The next concentric circle out was reserved for Jewish women. And then the outer circle, or what, what the Bible calls the outer courts, were reserved for the Gentiles. And so what we have in this episode is merchants taking over the, the court of the Gentiles to sell and to profit in the house of God. It's just another way to communicate 
less belonging, less inclusion for those who were not ethnic insiders. They actually, in some temples, posted signs that read as follows. Any Gentile who goes beyond the Gentile court will be killed. I mean, could you imagine we posted signs like that on the church yard? Like, if you don't fit this criteria and this criteria and this criteria and this criteria, and if you come in here, we're going to kill you. That's not a great church growth strategy. It reminds me of a a Simpsons episode that I once watched, and yes, I have watched The Simpsons a number of occasions, and I believe it was Marge and Bart that were driving past a church in their neighborhood, and there's a big church sign in the churchyard, and it says, this is a private church, please worship elsewhere. That's what's going on here. As the Gentiles are relegated out to the periphery and and, and the Jews still take over the periphery and make it a noisy, busy place. The one time a week and and the one, one permitted place where the Gentiles could get solitude with God is now turned into something that feels like Broadway in downtown Nashville on the sidewalk right outside of Tootsie's on a Friday night except with loud cows and loud chickens added to it. And Jesus gets furious. He says, my house is a house of prayer. And you're destroying the solitude that makes that possible. And it's a house for all nations. And you're denying that. You know, the the Jews were the sons of Abraham, who had so easily forgotten that when God had told Abraham, you're going to have many children, as many as the sand on the sea and the the stars in the sky, he said, you're going to be the father of all nations. All the way back in Genesis 17. And so mission creep had had become something entirely different and, and, and unrecognizable to what the original vision for the family of God would be. And so he gets in the grill of the merchants and what felt like outrage to them felt like gentleness and care and tenderness to the Gentiles to whose defense Jesus was rushing. Does that make sense? What can feel like outrage to some actually feels like care and compassion to others. Jesus never hesitated to confront a bully especially if it meant protecting somebody who was vulnerable, like the Gentiles in this occasion. What I want us to notice also is which house Jesus is most zealous to cleanse. It's not the house of Rome. It's not the capital city of Rome. But it is the house of God that is situated in Jerusalem. Rome is not and never has been Jesus' primary concern. Rome is no friend to Judaism at this time, and Rome is no friend to Christianity. And yet it's the context in which Christianity is born. If we read through the Gospels, we only see Jesus engaging in political conversations twice. Once was when 
some of the scribes and Pharisees wanted to discredit Jesus. And so they said, you know, they asked him one of those catch-22 questions. Should your disciples pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus comes up with this brilliant answer. Whose image is on the coin? Oh, Caesar's? Well, yeah, I guess so. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Well, where's God's image imprinted? On a human being. So give your whole self to God and give the coin with Caesar's image to Caesar. So that's, that's the first conversation. The second one was when Governor Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, why aren't you defending yourself against the accusation of the crowds? And, and he says to Jesus, don't you realize that, that, that I can acquit you? I have the power to set you free. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, you would have no power except that my Father in heaven has given it to you. End of conversation. That's it. That's it for Jesus and national politics. Where he focuses is not on the world outside the house of God, but primarily on the world inside the house of God, because only when the world inside the house of God is cleansed can the people then leave the house of God into the city of man and be a life-giving presence, including in the halls of politics and, and every other hall that we might find ourselves in. But until nominalism and injustice is taken care of inside the house of God, you're never going to be fruitful outside of the house of God. Because you will continue to be all about the will to power and not about the will to love. You will be more Nietzschean than Christian in the way you conduct yourself outside of the house of God if you don't cleanse the house of God first. And so he says, again, to those who are abusing their power inside the temple and hurting people, the Gentiles particularly, without power, mm -mm, it's not the way it works in here. This is my house and it's a house of prayer. And this was what caused the same crowd to cry crucify, by the way, about Jesus. Because he would not support, he would not support their vision for, for what God and country conflated together was supposed to look like. He wouldn't support it. He says, judgment begins with the household of God. Your vision for a Messiah is, is that of a social reformer who will show Rome who is boss. And I, I'm just here to tell you that's not why I came. Oh, I'll deal with Rome in the same way that I dealt with Egypt, in the same way that I dealt with Babylon, in the same way that I dealt with Assyria. I'll deal with Rome. But Peter, you need to put your sword back in your pocket. You remember that scene where the people are coming to arrest Jesus in order to crucify him and Jesus pull, or Peter pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of a man named Malchus and Jesus carefully picks up the man's ear and restores it, another healing miracle on the spot. And then he looks at Peter and he says, oh my goodness, we, we don't fight that way, Peter. We're not about force, we're about love. We're not about exerting our strength with our weapons, we're, we're about laying down our rights in order to love and serve. That's where the power is for us. Put your sword away. It is not his blood that is going to win this revolution. It's my blood that's going to win this revolution. 
Peter puts away his sword. And then Jesus turns in the same instance to the man that all of the disciples, the nicest things that the the disciples can say about Judas, the nicest name they can think of for him in the Gospels is the betrayer. You read the Gospels, that's what they call him. But Jesus, his last conversation, his last recorded conversation with Jesus, what does he do, or, or with Judas, as Judas is betraying him, he says, friend. Do you what you've come here for? Friend, go ahead. It's time to eliminate me. This is, this is how it's been you know, written in the heart of God since before time and before history. Friend, do what you've come here for. Or there's that time in the ninth chapter of Luke where the disciples enter into a Samaritan village and the Samaritans are rude to Jesus and his disciples and the disciples say, hey, Jesus, you know, we've seen you do some magic tricks, so how about you call some fire down on these Samaritans and show them who's boss and destroy them before our eyes? Won't that be fun? (laughs) And Jesus rebukes them. Because they don't have in mind the things of God. God does not have a Nietzschean bone in his body. Jesus is not about the will to power. He's not about coercion. He's not about dominance. He's not about being a revolutionary in the traditional understanding of what the word revolutionary means. He's not about transfer of power. He's about redefinition of power. Will we get on board with that? Or will we too cry crucify? Because we are so unwilling in our Americanness to be weak and to recognize that that's where the power is. I, carry, I, I put this rock on my desk to remind me every day when I sit down to, to do the work of the ministry and prepare the work of the ministry. This was prepared for me by a young man with autism in our church, a superstar in our disabilities and special needs community. He's read scripture up here and it takes him a long time as well to read scripture for us and it's glorious. It says, God heart you. God heart you. Put it right there on my desk. Reminds me, every time I look at it, what the Apostle Paul said, it's not in strength but it's in weakness that the power of God is made perfect. Eventually, the disciples caught on. Yes, they spoke truth to power. You see that in the book of Acts. But they also did so with utmost respect. Fear God, honor the king, Peter said about Nero, who would eventually execute him. Submit to the governing authorities, Paul said, about Nero, who would eventually execute him and the others. Did they, were they compromising their faith? No. They, they, they said to, to the authorities, when the authorities said, we forbid you to, to preach about Jesus, they said, we have to obey God over men. So where they had to depart, they, they were willing to pay the consequences and pay the price, and they held on to their integrity. But where respect and honor and obedience to authorities was possible, they gave it. That was part of their witness to love not just their friends, but their enemies. Imagine that. What a radical vision. They won by losing. We're here now worshiping Jesus on Palm Sunday because the disciples won by losing in the same way that their master had done before Easter came.
Finally, the power to make room. The gospel is first for the Jew. Jesus was a Jewish man. But then it is also for the Gentile, the Apostle Paul wrote. And the Apostle Paul would also go on to write in the, in the book of Romans, to the Roman Gentiles, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's talking about a social revolution when, when he curses the fig tree here. It's a metaphor. The fig tree ceases to produce fruit in the same way that the scribes and Pharisees, the, the temple gatekeepers, have ceased to produce fruit. They have sabotaged the house of God. They've made it all about themselves. They have ignored the nations. They're praying prayers. Their rabbis are praying prayers like this. Thank you, my God, that I'm not a slave, that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a Gentile. And then the Holy Spirit sees fit in the book of Acts to make sure that the first three converts to Christianity are a slave, a woman, and a Gentile. Behold the power of God. You know, I was reading on a church website a while ago their core value statements. We, we pastors like to learn from other churches. Number one core value for this church was weakness. I was like, that's right. That is a number one functional core value for a church that follows Jesus. That's not about denying its neighbor, taking up its comforts and following its dreams, but about denying itself, taking up its cross and following Christ. And then his influencer revolution that happened after that, led predominantly by damaged people. Abraham and Sarah were infertile until age 100. The ones who had heard the promise of God all their lives, many nations are going to come from you. And then when finally Isaac is born, they, they, they couldn't think of any names to name him other than Isaac, which means laughter. This is hilarious that it's happening this way. Jacob, wounded from his father's favoritism toward his brother Esau, living with the haunting memory that he'd always been his father's second favorite son out of two sons. Later is appointed to be the father of the tribes of Israel. Moses, who has a speech disability, is called by God to be the prophet, not only to preach God's word to the people of Israel, but to, to stand up prophetically to the mighty Pharaoh. Bathsheba, who was a victim of abuse, becomes part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Paul, who was once an enemy to Christianity and an antagonist toward Gentiles, becomes the ambassador of Christianity to the Gentile world. Peter, who was once a coward, is now one of the boldest men who ever lived. Mary Magdalene, who had been possessed by demons at one point, becomes the first eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the apostle to the apostles, the one who goes and tells them that the Lord is risen. And then what happens? The Jews continue on. That's what happens. I've shared with this... I've shared this with you before, that Walker Percy said that the thing that tipped him over the edge, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, the thing that made him believe in Christ was that the Jews still exist and the Hittites don't. You know, like it says in Hamilton, the musical, 
Oceans rise, empires fall, but the tiny little vulnerable, weak nation of Israel still here. Percy says, I've met hundreds of, of, of Jewish people in New York City, but I've never run across a single Hittite in my entire life. Where are all the Hittites? You know, these insurmountable kingdoms all gone and decimated and a little tiny Israel still moving forward. And that little tiny tribe of Christians now over one-third of the world's population and counting. Power. Maybe this is the reason why Christianity over the centuries has become most appealing to people in pain, people on the margins, and least appealing to people who are crushing it. Maybe there's a relationship there. I remember one of my sermons about four months into my time at Christ Pres. finally decided I'm going to open up to the congregation that there are times when I experience anxiety and depression. And I, you know, it's like a minute of, of sharing one of my own many afflictions. But that particular one struck a chord with, with, with a man that I had seen as a very successful business leader in the community. He comes storming up at me after the service and he says, Look, I think you're a pretty good communicator, but I, I want you to know that I'm entirely unimpressed by that. You know, you've been here four months now, but today is the day that I decided that you were going to be my pastor. Because today is the day that you told me that you are just like me. I'm like, wow. And in that moment, I started <laughs> to think, maybe my own influence is going to be less about the sermons I preach or the books I write or whatever and more about how the way God's power is demonstrated through the weakest things about me. Some of you know me well enough to know that I'm more one of you than I am, you know, standing above anybody in here. What all this means is this, especially for sinners and sufferers, the end of yourself is the beginning of your impact. And so it's important to ask ourselves the question, what do we want the most? Transfer of power? I'm telling you, transfer of power has not accomplished a whole lot in the world. It's accomplished a lot of violence. It's accomplished a lot of discord and division. It's accomplished a lot of have and have not dynamics that transfer of power has. But the redefinition of power That's changed the world, where we transition away from the Nietzschean way toward the Jesus way, where power is made perfect in weakness, where we start to discover that Anne Lamott was right when she says it's okay if you're crazy and very damaged because all the best people are. Easter is coming soon, but the only way to get there is through the journey to the cross and through Good Friday. We can't pass around it any more than Jesus would allow his disciples to pass around Samaria. And we can't call fire down on it either, lest Jesus rebuke us. Because Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves daily, take up their cross, follow me. And on the other side of the cross is what we get to celebrate a week from today. But for now, and I'll close with this before we Prepare for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world in order to change the world. 